Welcome to Insight, live at noon with a rebroadcast at 7 p.m. A recent California law removed citizenship requirements to becoming a peace officer, and UC Davis police made a groundbreaking hire. Ahead on Insight, we speak with the first DACA recipient sworn in as a member of the university's police force. Also, with elections less than a month away, we are having conversations with the leading candidates in the race for California's Senate seat. We begin with Congressman Adam Schiff about his stances on pivotal issues and what sets him apart from opponents. Finally, the annual Wild and Scenic Film Festival is returning to Nevada County this weekend in the foothills. We'll learn how the artistic event inspires activism while also supporting the Yuba River watershed. I'm Vicki Gonzalez. That's all coming up today on Insight. But first, here's the news. From CAP Radio in Sacramento, this is Insight. I'm your host, Vicki Gonzalez. California is home to the most immigrants of any state in the country. Over 10 million live and work in the Golden State. And until recently, there was one major profession in California that was closed off to them, becoming a police or peace officer. However, that all changed with a recent California law, which removed the U.S. citizenship requirement from the job as of January of last year, 2023, expanding eligibility to non-citizens who have full legal work authorization. And UC Davis recently made a groundbreaking move. The university's police department hired its first officer, who is also a Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals DACA recipient. Officer Ernesto Moron was sworn in in late December, and he joins us along with UC Davis Police Chief Joe Farrell, who was a major advocate for this piece of legislation. Welcome and good afternoon to you both. Good afternoon, Vicki. Thanks for having us on. Good afternoon, Vicki. Officer Marone, I want to start with you. I would love if you could introduce yourself to us a little bit more about what brought you to Davis. Uh, so my name is Officer uh, Marone uh, or Ernesto Marone. Um, so what brought me to Davis uh, was I was looking to go to a university when I was in high school. Um, the first universities that I was looking at was either San Francisco State or UC Davis. Um mainly because of their music program uh, for both. Uh, you know, I like music and marching band was something I really liked. Um, and I kind of thought up to myself, like, well, you know, UC Davis sounds fun. You know, it's a UC, you know, it's going to be filled with so many uh, opportunities for me. And uh, really, that's what brought me to UC Davis. Um, you know, I also, also wanted to live uh, away from home uh, to set up some sort of uh, independency. Um, but that's really what brought me to Davis is uh, honestly, it was just their marching band that that kind of drew me in there. So how did you go from being attracted to the marching band and music to becoming interested in a career in law enforcement? Yeah, so I was looking at jobs uh, when I got to the university. Uh, obviously, the first uh, year of my university career was not the best um, just because I was, you know, struggling, uh, you know, trying to get away from my parents, but also still missing them. Um, so I was looking for jobs just to help my parents financially. Uh, you know, I didn't want them to help me financially any longer just because, you know, they are were also struggling with uh, finding jobs and all that stuff. Um, so I was looking at jobs. Uh, so I applied to the bookstore for the university, but I didn't hear back from them. Um, so as soon as I 
you know, I didn't hear anything from them. I saw that the University of uh, Police Department was was hiring security, um, so student securities, uh, Aggie host. Um, so I decided to apply, and I was like, oh, you know, we'll see if I get it. Uh, you know, I've never worked in some security job, uh, let alone a police department. So um, I got an interview, uh, and you know, got hired as a, a student security for the university. And now, I mean, now we're here and now you are newly sworn in <laughs> officer. And that brings me to Chief Farrow. I mean, you have an extensive career in law enforcement. Um, I actually interviewed you when you were leaving SCHP commissioner back in uh, 2017, moving over to UC Davis police. I mean, with your decades long experience in law enforcement, what stands out to you about this recent California law that made Officer Marone possible? Yeah, and, and Vicky, it's good to see you again. But that that was the question for me was we knew, I knew that we had an obstacle. We had a roadblock for some of our community members who wanted to be police officers but couldn't. Ernesto just happened to be the person that I met that really infused the excitement for me to try to make a change. He was a young man at our university, excelling in the security department, just establishing himself on a day-to-day basis of a person of high character and intelligence. And he just seemed to be something that every police department, especially with the narrative that we have right now going on across America, he was the person that you really wanted to bring on board to really fulfill those ranks and be reflective of our communities. Knowing that he was interested, I knew that there was going to be an obstacle because of the status of the current law about the citizenship. And so my my whole process was to start the dialogue and the debate, to ask the question, why? And was it necessary? And to get that debate into the legislature to see if they would agree that we have many members of our community that could be good police officers if that one obstacle was removed. And that's really where it started for us was a direction that we could go, not just for Officer Marone, but really for all community members in the state of California. And this was a piece of legislation back in 2022. It went into effect January 1 of 2023. For people who are learning about this new uh, recent law for the first time, explain how it works. Well, it's very simple. Is It removes one thing, the citizenship requirement in, in that. And what it does still require is work authorization from the federal government. And so for people that don't know what that means, it means that what the federal government recognizes that people are in this country, they authorize them to work just like anyone else. And there are many, many undocumented community members that work alongside of us every single day in so many different capacities. One, and really in your when you teed this off, you stated that this is one of the one occupations that had the obstacle of the citizenship, not with fire, not with becoming an attorney or any other job. It didn't have that obstacle. We simply removed that at the level of the playing field. And so now in California, that anyone wishing to be a police officer, as long as they have work authorization, pass a comprehensive background, go through the rigorous training in the medical and stuff, they, they are eligible to compete for a job in law enforcement. Mm. Officer Marone, I mean, I know that you were working in security at UC Davis, but when you got wind that this piece of legislation was making its way through the state capitol, was this something that you were interested in, like right off the bat, wanting to become a police officer? Yeah, as soon as uh, Chief Farrell uh, advised me that it was moving forward. Uh, I started to hit the gym uh, every single day. Uh, you know, after during COVID, I kind of let myself go and, you know, working from home and, um, you know, just it, it just happened. So as soon as I heard something that, you know, it might be moving, moving forward, I, you know, I started to hit the gym, started to, you know, learn 
you know, a lot of the penal codes, all that stuff just got me excited for, um, you know, for the next steps. And, you know, I've been in contact with uh, Chief Barrow throughout this whole, you know, legislation and, uh, you know, but able to even testify in, in the Capitol for it. So, you know, I was very excited once I, I heard from Chief Farrell that it was going to move forward. Yeah, that was going to be my next point. I mean, you were also active in the legislative process by testifying at, at a state assembly hearing at the state Capitol. What was that experience like for you, Officer Marone? Uh, it was very uh, scary and, and, and nervous. The, uh, I was nervous to even be in front of uh, a committee that... Um, you know, was in charge of, you know, taking the bill to the next step. So uh, being able to testify and give my life story and, and the reason why I wanted to be a police officer, um, you know, very, you know, it was a scary, but it was fun at the end just because, you know, that testifying, you know, kind of helped boost that legislative to go um, to the governor's office and get assigned. What was the main message you wanted to get across to lawmakers? I think the main message for me was that, you know, I've been here for for many years. I've been here for almost two, you know, two decades, 21 years, almost here, um, that I'm like anyone else, you know, n- nothing sets me apart from anyone that, you know, goes into the job. Um, you know, I, I love this country as much as anyone does here. Uh, and it's the only country that I, I kind of know. I, you know, I've, like I said, I lived here for a few years. So, you know, the message was like, you know, I've been here for a long time, you know, uh, this is your name, a uh, country that is home to me. You know, Mexico, yes, I'm from there, but I only spent five years in Mexico. So, you know, five, for a five-year-old, you, you don't really, you know, get to know much of, of the country or get to know much of the even people that you go around with. Um, so that was just main the message is just letting people know that, you know, I, I've been here for a while. You know, I've I've gone to school here. I've I work here. Um, so that was just main the I guess the main message I, I wanted to to provide. And it's a powerful one. Chief Farrow, I mean, you testified as well. And this legislation was authored by State Senator Nancy Skinner. And I'm just curious, was there an uphill climb to getting this passed and then signed by the governors? What, what was it like talking to lawmakers across the aisle? I don't think it was uphill. I think that there was a conversation. There were people that had interests from both sides. There was some opposition. I think, generally speaking, the opposition was more about being inquisitive. What does this really mean? Are you lowering standards? Are you changing some type of protocol or policy about backgrounds and and stuff? And so I think there was a lot of conversation that had to occur, and little by little, I think that – I don't want to say we swayed votes, but I think it became more widely known – All we're doing is removing one aspect. Everything else stays the same. The criteria to be a police officer is the same today as it was many, many years ago with the exception of the citizenship. And I think that when uh, Officer Marone testified, what they found was authentic person who really believed in this country, believed in what they were doing. And really, I think I can tell you uh, um, for the record, one one of the members of the committee actually walked us out into the hall and said, you know, I'm so glad that you testified is you personally you really just changed the way I think about this whole thing. Mm. And I think I think Ernesto's testimony was so well thought of and received by a lot of people is they can relate. There are many more Ernesto Morales out there who really just want the opportunity. And I think that's what our job was, was to create the environment for an opportunity to compete 
win the job on your own merits, but just have an opportunity to compete. I know in recent years, there has been a challenge statewide. You know, the number of patrol officers has been on a decline from like 2008 to 2021. And that's according to the Public Policy Institute of California. I believe it's like a 13% decrease. I would imagine a law like this creates an opportunity to, to get that percentage in the opposite direction. Oh, I think it does. You know, it it it, uh, it wasn't the case for UC Davis, but I think that is the case for a lot of other departments. That what it really does is allows every department to really go deeper into their community. That there are many many individuals who are probably looking for careers in law enforcement that a year ago didn't have access to. They do now. And so little by little, this law is becoming more widely known. The opportunity is now becoming more available to a lot more people. And I'm hopeful, you know, if we do this radio show in a year or two down the road, we'll have many more uh, people who have taken advantage of this law. But I think it's just taken a little time to get the word out. And um, But I think it's really a, a good law, and I'm really so proud to be behind it. Given that you're a former CHP commissioner, that is obviously a statewide agency. How does something like this, how could it scale up to, to that level of law enforcement and that type of department? Well, I think that every department, I won't speak on behalf of the CHP anymore, but I would imagine they, along with the LAPDs and the San Diego PDs, the big major departments are probably at this point figuring out how to be more inclusive, looking for ways to bring people on in every community. They would obviously have to change their policies, which POST did. POST sets the policies for all the departments. And I think what they're doing now is going to go out and start recruiting because I think that it allows uh, departments like the CHP and like LAPDs to go deeper into their communities that they serve. You know, the California Highway Patrol, obviously, they serve the entire state. There are many, 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 many communities um, that they're interface with every single day that will have DACA recipients undocumented who want careers in law enforcement, and the CHP would be a wonderful employer for them. Yeah. Officer Marone, I mean, historically, you know, not all communities necessarily have trust or, or relate with law enforcement. And I would imagine, given that all of our lived experience, it applies to also what we do as a profession. How does your lived experience as an immigrant, as a DACA recipient, how does that shape your work as a police officer and how you interact with the community? Uh, so it, it helps me understand that, you know, I came from a community, uh, you know, I, I'm from the San Fernando Valley. Um, you know, a lot of people are scared of police. Um, you know, I was scared of the police growing up. I uh, just, you know, I've always said, you know, my parents, fat friends were always telling us, don't talk to the police, don't talk to police, you know, they're going to deport you, this and that. Um, so that experience kind of helps me kind of be able to talk to the members of the community and the members of undocumented community saying, look, we're not going to deport you uh, just because, you know, we interact with you, um, you know, it, if I weren't to talk with my department at UC Davis, I wouldn't be in this profession because I, I would still be afraid of the, of the police, you know. Um, but talking with the department and being able to know the officers that were serving um, when I was a student uh, at UC Davis kind of helped me realize that, you know, police officers are just there to make you feel safe. Um, you know, they're there to protect you. Um, and that's kind of the reason why I wanted to go into this profession is was to, you know, serve the community, serve uh, the community of UC Davis uh, and, you know, help them, you know, realize that we're there just to serve them um, and we're there to protect them. Um, so that's really kind of what helps me now with just the experience that I've grown up with. You know, I was never 
talking with the police when I was growing up. So, you know, if I were to talk to them, I'm, I'm sure I would have, you know, from the very beginning would have been uh, trying to become a police officer. But, um, you know, deep in my mind, I've always wanted to be a police officer, but it was just nothing that was just in behind in back of my mind uh, for years. And now it's a reality. Uh, Chief Farrell, you're an immigrant as well. <laughs> you were yes. born in Japan. How how does that shape you? What really was a pivotal role you had in, in, in this legislation becoming a new law in California? I think I think for me, yeah, I came to this country when I was 10, going on 11 years old. And I always remember growing up in Japan, coming to the United States. And it, it was a different time when I came. And uh, it was a rough time, and a lot of different things. But I've always felt that we do better as a society, we do better as a, as a discipline in law enforcement when we're inclusive. And I just really, really felt that the more we can broaden our scope and our horizon and our worth from all the members of our department, the better off we're going to be. And this was just one of the last things that were the obstacle where we, we always said we were inclusive, but Vicki, we knew deep down we weren't until we were able to change this law to allow members of our community that for a long time have been barred from being part of our departments. This was the, this was the, the achievement that I think we were looking for. And so me, being a member coming here, to me, it, I don't want to say it was personal, but I understood it, I guess. I just understood and had deep-rooted feelings on how to balance this and make it fair, make the system more inclusive. And so it's very fulfilling for me. Well, Chief Farrow and Officer Moron, thank you so much for talking about what is a big milestone. Thank you very much for having us. Thank you very much, Vicki. Joe Farrow is the chief of police for the UC Davis Police Department, and Officer Ernesto Moron is the first DACA recipient to be sworn in as a member of the department following a California law, which took effect last year that expands the eligibility to become a peace officer. You're listening to Insight on your NPR station, Cap Radio. I'm Vicki Gonzalez. Hi there. If you're enjoying Insight, we think you'll love our podcast, Blue Dot, with your host, that's me, Dave Shlom. Every week, we take a deep dive into science and nature, from the search for life beyond our pale blue dot in the vastness of space to the ecosystems we all depend on. You never know what you'll hear from the physics of Leonardo da Vinci to communications with humpback whales. Check out Blue Dot wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. You're listening to Insight here on CAP Radio. I'm your host, Vicki Gonzalez. Tonight, California voters will get another chance to hear from the four leading candidates running for the late Senator Dianne Feinstein's seat. They are Democratic Congress members Adam Schiff, Katie Porter, Barbara Lee, and Republican Steve Garvey. The debate will be televised across California, and it can be seen locally on Fox 40 here tonight at 7 p.m. And the debate may prove to be really critical, since the top two candidates, regardless of party, will move on to the November election. Last week, I spoke with Congressman Adam Schiff about his candidacy and what sets him apart from the rest. Congressman Schiff, thank you for making the time. Great to be with you. You've been serving the House since 2001. That's more than 20 years. How have your views on immigration evolved? Well, I think we need a comprehensive immigration reform, and I've felt that way for a great many years now. 
Uh, frankly, I'm skeptical the Republicans are ever going to help us do this. I think they view the border as the political gift that won't stop giving. Uh, and I think Donald Trump has made that uh, pretty apparent uh, just within the last couple of weeks. But, you know, in the interest of Democratic uh, self-criticism and candor, when we controlled the House and Senate and the White House, we didn't get it done. And that's on my party. I want to make sure in the Senate that I fight to do away with the filibuster for many reasons, to restore reproductive freedom, to restore voting rights, but also to pass a comprehensive immigration reform that provides a pathway to citizenship for 11 million that are living in the shadows, that helps the dreamers become citizens and farm workers. Uh, I think we're going to have to do this ourselves and, uh, and, and I'm going to fight to do away with the filibuster so we can finally get that done. You bring up a key issue. I mean, at the root of this is achieving bipartisan support across houses. I mean, and this issue transcends immigration. It, it has been harder, if not seemingly impossible, to get past gridlock. Why are you best positioned to work across the aisle to get bills signed into law? I have the longest, longest track record of doing exactly that. Uh, I was able to build an early earth warning system. I was able to build mass transit uh, in L.A. I'm known as the father of the gold line. Uh, I've passed uh, open space legislation. I've passed bills to protect press freedom and attack nuclear proliferation. I brought back millions uh, to house people who are unhoused. These initiatives are bipartisan initiatives. Even in the midst of the worst fights I had on the Intelligence Committee, with Devin Nunes, Republican Devin Nunes, uh, over Trump and Russia and Ukraine and presidential abuse of power. We continue to get our annual intelligence bills passed on a very bipartisan basis. In Congress, you need to compartmentalize. Uh, you need to say, OK, we're going to fight over these other issues, but we're also going to find common ground. Uh, to build light rail, I needed to work with Republican David Dreyer. Uh, to fund critical NASA missions, I need to work with Republican John Culberson. Uh, and there are many examples of those partnerships. Uh, and uh, and I think uh, I have the strongest record of actually getting things done for California. When it comes to crime, according to the Public Policy Institute of California, PPIC, the state's violent crime rate has increased when compared to pre-COVID 2019. And this is also a national trend as well. But we're still well below like a third of the peak, which was in the early 1990s. But what is your role if elected as senator? Where do you see this? Do you see this as more of a state local issue? Where would your role be as senator? I think it is federal, state, and local. I think we all have to work together to make sure that people are safe, people have right to be safe in their homes, in their communities, in their businesses, and feel safe. Uh, this is an issue I've wrestled with since I was a prosecutor uh, in Los Angeles with the U.S. Attorney's Office. And I think what we're going to need to do to make our communities more safe again is, first of all, work on prevention, keep young people in school and out of trouble but also invest in community-based policing where our police forces work hand-in-hand -hand with the community and are well-trained not to use excessive force and to uh, adopt uh, uh, intervention strategies uh, that are conducive of the public safety. Uh, I think it's going to require more use of tools like DNA evidence. I was very proud to bring back millions uh, for California to eliminate rape kit backlogs. I also helped get a regional DNA crime lab uh, established so that we could solve property crimes like these smash and grab robberies and other uh, serious uh, crimes. So I think it's going to take a comprehensive approach and the federal government has a real role to play. 
You have also supported, you know, what would be considered tough on crime policies early on in your tenure. Uh, As you mentioned, you're also a former prosecutor. I mean, should you be judged according to your track record? I mean, some of the policies were increased funding for more cops in neighborhoods. You authored that piece of legislation, stiffer penalties for juveniles. Uh, You know, I also authored the the most far-reaching criminal justice reform, I think, in the state's history, the Schiff-Cardinus Crime Prevention Act of 2000, which uh, has provided, I think, hundreds of millions of dollars uh, to keep young people engaged in school and uh, in productive activities and vocational training. The Rand Corporation has said that legislation that uh, I co-authored and co-wrote has resulted in lower arrest rates, lower incarceration rates, and lower costs. So I'm proud to have uh, uh, authored that proactive and and preventive legislation. Uh, You're right, in the 1990s, crime rates were very high. Some of the strategies we used didn't work. Others, like the Ship Gardner's bill, has worked, does work. Uh, I've tried to model that uh, in Congress with similar legislation and work with Tony Cardenas on it. When it comes to the hindsight that you have as a prosecutor, also as a Congress member, has there been harm or unintended consequences to, to the laws of the past, to the laws of, say, like the 90s or early 2000s? How, and also, how does that shape how your views have evolved over that time? I think there have been uh, unintended consequences uh, in, the, in the 90s in terms of the, some of the tough on crime legislation that resulted in more incarceration but didn't result in safer communities. Uh, my experience has demonstrated uh, to me over the years that what is most effective as a deterrent uh, to keep people from committing crimes uh, is not necessarily the length of sentence, but rather the certainty that they will be caught and the certainty they will face some kind of a consequence. Uh, and so I, I certainly favor moving to a deterrence um, along those lines, which is why I've put such a heavy emphasis on the use of DNA evidence which is such a powerful tool, both to find those who are responsible for violent and nonviolent crimes, but also can be really powerful in exonerating those who are not guilty. So I think with tools like that, with, uh, with good community-based policing, uh, with a you know, federal, state, and local a task force devoted to interdicting fentanyl and dealing with the fentanyl crisis, we can dramatically reduce crime. Do you think there should be stiffer penalties when it comes to fentanyl? I mean, given the the rise in opioid-related deaths and overdoses? I think, you know, certainly going after the, the traffickers, the organized crime rings, uh, and deterring them is an important part of the solution. And I've sought to get increased uh, funding at the border to interdict fentanyl. Uh, we also, though, need uh, strategies to educate the public about the dangers of fentanyl. Uh, as well as provide resources uh, for schools and neighborhoods where if there is a fentanyl overdose, people can be quickly treated and lives can be saved. So I think it's a combination of deterrence and interdiction, uh, intervention and education, uh, if we're going to get ahead of this terrible scourge. A big issue, arguably the biggest, I think, to a lot of Californians is homelessness. Uh, California is home to the largest unhoused population in the country. Many counties, like here in Sacramento, hit record numbers. An unprecedented amount of funding has been dedicated to this. But if you ask a lot of people, I think, they don't really see or feel a significant difference in their neighborhoods. What is the federal government's role in this? What could you do as senator? I think the most important role the federal government can play is in incentivizing the building of a lot more affordable housing. 
At its most basic, this is a supply problem. There simply isn't enough housing, and certainly not enough housing that people can afford. Uh, and unless we, in California alone, start to build hundreds of thousands of new units, we're never going to get ahead of this problem. Uh, no matter what we spend, there will be more people becoming homeless than we're finding shelter for. So we need to build a lot more. The low-income housing tax credit is something I've been a big champion of because that changes uh, the incentives. It aligns them so that developers will build housing that's affordable. We also need to reduce a lot of the roadblocks to building affordable housing. In some municipalities, it can take up to four years to build new housing. We're never going to solve this problem if it's going to take us four years. So I think the federal government also should incentivize local governments to get to yes quickly on, uh, on their housing elements, on their plans for affordable housing. And we also need to provide relief for renters. Uh, and I support a renter's tax credit. If you're lucky enough to buy a house, you get help with your mortgage uh, on your taxes, but you don't get help if you're a renter. And I think that's unequitable. And it also, because the rents have been going up so dramatically, is forcing people out of their homes. Realistically, how do you incentivize local governments and in a state as, as diverse in demographics as California to streamline and speed up building housing? Well, I think, you know, through the community development block grant program, through federal funding, we can incentivize those communities that have good, strong housing elements that is have incorporated into their urban plans, the building of affordable housing that are moving with alacrity to make that happen. We can establish the metrics to do that. Uh, I also think we're going to need to provide more federal support for the wraparound services so that when we do uh, move people into shelter, they're helped in staying in shelter by getting mental health issues addressed, by getting substance abuse issues addressed. Uh, and a lot of local communities lack the resources to do that. Federal government, I think, needs to step up and provide a lot more of that support. Are you satisfied with how the state is handling this issue? Do you understand why a lot of people are frustrated? I totally understand why people are frustrated. I'm frustrated, too. And I'm particularly frustrated when we see, notwithstanding how much we're spending to find housing for people, that each year there seem to be more people unhoused than the year before. Uh, the one thing I will say where we've made very substantial progress is in finding housing for our homeless veterans. Um, we've shown, frankly, what a comprehensive approach can do when you concentrate on the on the problem. And I think we've had about a, you know, 50, we've addressed about 50% of the homeless problem among our veterans, which is still not enough, but it is progress. But I, I completely understand the public's frustration in my experience People are very compassionate. They don't want their neighbors to have to live on the street. Uh, they want to be able to use their parks and feel safely when they bring their kids to the park. They're willing to spend money to do that, but they want to know their money is well spent. Uh, and I also think one thing the federal government can do is establish these standards by which we can measure, okay, this is working. We should continue to invest in it. And this is not, this is a waste of money. Um, and I think establishing those kind of measurements and deliverables is really important to, you know, to restore public confidence in the approach. Tied to this is the cost of living in California. I mean, state leaders will say that we are the fifth largest economy in the world, but California, a lot of Californians feel priced out in this state. It's already one of the most expensive places to live in the country. Among that, we have inflation, and I know that's national, but we have the highest gas prices, taxes, real estate. What can you do if elected a senator? What tangible policies could you achieve to address inflation and its impact on Californians? 
Well, in terms of uh, affordability, you know, the number one crisis, I think, is housing. So building a lot more housing will help bring down the cost of housing. But also people can't afford child care. Uh, and for many families, they're spending more on child care than they are on their mortgage. And in order to solve that problem of unaffordable child care, we're going to have to incentivize the construction of new child care facilities. We're going to have to pay our child care professionals higher salaries. There's a real shortage not of people willing to do the work. There are lots of people that want to do the work, but don't want to do it for poverty wages. Uh, and so I've been working on legislation to create stronger incentives to provide affordable childcare, to increase compensation, to reduce student debt among those that go into providing childcare. Uh, I would like to see a system where if you're paying more than 5 to 10% of your income on childcare, you get the rest back in your tax rebate. Uh, so we need to address the high cost of, of child care. We need to bring down gas prices. And I think, frankly, a big part of that is oil companies gouging us. Uh, and uh, I have a bill that would put a windfall profits tax on the oil companies uh, and suspend the gas tax and pay for it with that windfall profits tax on oil companies. For food prices, we need to attack these mergers, these anti-competitive mergers where one grocery chain you know, uh, gobbles up another and they just raise prices. So there are, I think, a lot of things we can do to bring down costs, uh, but it's going to differ in each sector of the economy, uh, and it's going to require that uh, that we focus on uh, increasing supply, the supply of uh, housing, the supply of childcare, as well as ta- attacking anti-competitive behavior. We only have a few minutes left, and I want to get to an important distinction that you have with your colleagues in Congress that are also running for senator as well, and that comes to the Israel-Hamas war. Can you explain your stance on on this war as it stands today? Uh, you know, just starting at the starting point, which was October 7th, uh, it, there was a ceasefire before October 7th. Hamas violated it with a brutal attack uh, in which they murdered uh, Israelis, they raped Israelis, kidnapped Israelis, kidnapped Americans. Uh, It was indiscriminate, brutal, deadly, designed to be. Uh, Israel has a right to defend itself, uh, not only from that attack, but from future attacks which Hamas is committed to undertaking. Uh, No nation could, I think, withstand that kind of attack without responding. So I think the United States should support Israel in defending itself. At the same time, we should continue to work with Israel to reduce the number of civilian casualties, to make sure that we get aid to people in Gaza and that we get hostages out of Gaza. I'm very hopeful that that Secretary Blinken and others will be successful in negotiating another uh, pause in the fighting uh, to get hostages out and get aid in. Uh, But I have not supported a permanent ceasefire that would permanently entrench Hamas governing Gaza Uh, That would permanently mean our hostages, American hostages, are still held by a terrorist group. Uh, And uh, but I do support these humanitarian pauses to get aid in and and hostages out. You know, as it stands today, it's four months um, since October 7th. And the death toll in Gaza is more than 27,000 people. You know, as I know you're well aware, a majority are women and children. I believe 85% are displaced from their homes in Gaza. Um, starvation is increasing. How do you view this? And what is your role in this as as a lawmaker in Congress? I, you know, it is a terrible, terrible tragedy uh, that so many people have lost their lives, uh, that uh, these hostages are still uh, in Hamas custody, 
that so many people are being used as human shields by Hamas. Um, and, you know, my heart breaks uh, for all those families that have been displaced um, uh, who, you know, have nothing to do with Hamas. I think, uh, you know, it's a terrible, terrible loss of life. Um, and, you know, and I think that the way to, to move forward in this region uh, is uh, to ensure that Hamas is not governing Gaza, that we get the hostages released, uh, that we put the region back on the path to a two-state solution in which both Gaza and the West Bank are under Palestinian control under a reformed Palestinian authority. I think a two-state solution is the only real long-term answer to this conflict. And so I think every effort has to be made to get us back to a path to making that happen. And I'm, I have some hope, although hope is a scarce commodity in this part of the world, but I have some hope that maybe a deal can be struck in which Saudi Arabia recognizes Israel, normalizes relationship with Israel. Israel recognizes a Palestinian state uh, comprised of, of Gaza and the West Bank and, and governed by Palestinians and the reformed authority. Uh, and, uh, and that we can find a lasting peace in the region. That's what I hope. That's what I aim for. That's what I bent all my efforts towards uh, during my time in Congress. We're less than a month to the primary, and I know we're going to be wrapping up. What do you say to voters who have apathy and they're just kind of exhausted and and they're done with politics? They're done with career politicians. They believe that they're out of touch, you know, and it's they're finding it difficult to get motivated to vote. What do you say to these voters in California? Well, I would say that this is one of the most important elections they're ever going to vote in. Uh, because our very democracy uh, is on the ballot. Uh, if Donald Trump is successful and returns to the Oval Office, we may not become a full dictatorship, but we will not be the same democracy that we have been. Uh, and we will certainly make no progress on the things that they care the most about. Um, I've been fighting to attack climate change uh, and champion a Green New Deal and moving us to a green economy. That will never happen under a Donald Trump presidency. We will move farther away from that goal. Uh, I want to do away with the filibuster so we can attack the scourge of gun violence. Uh, Donald Trump isn't going to do anything about that. Uh, if anything, he'll make the problem worse. Uh, and you can go right down the list of things that young people care the most about. Uh, I'm fighting to do away with student debt. I want to make sure we restructure our higher ed so that students don't have to become so indebted in the future that we forgive debt that students have now. That's something Joe Biden is also working on. Uh, all of these things are going to be determined on this ballot. And I understand the skepticism. I understand the, the cynicism. But I also understand the imperative of this election. And I'm certainly doing all my part, all I can in the Senate campaign to engage young people in visiting college campuses. We've been very active in social media. We've got a young contingent that's really been doing a great job both on our campaign staff, but also among our volunteers. Because I think young people are really going to decide this election. Um, whether they turn out, we'll decide who the president of the United States is. And this just couldn't be a more important time. But given your past history with President Trump, if he becomes reelected, do you see a way where the two of you could have a productive relationship if you're elected senator? Well, if he continues with his plans to be a dictator on day one, I don't know how anything productive is going to get done. Um, we do need someone in the Senate, should that uh, worst of scenarios happen, that has a track record of leading in big fights like that. And I think alone among the candidates, 
I was in the middle of that fight while others were on the sidelines. And we need someone who's going to be in the middle of the fight to preserve our democracy if the worst happens at the top of the ticket. Uh, now, even when he was president, uh, in the few meetings I had with him, I raised infrastructure. I raised prescription drug prices, things I thought both parties could work on. He, he was touting infrastructure week for four years without doing anything on infrastructure. Uh, but uh, I'm always looking for ways we can move the country forward, and I'll continue to do so. Uh, but I, I fear for the country's future should he ever go near the instruments of power again. Congressman Schiff, thank you for the time. Thank you. That is Congressmember Adam Schiff, who is running for Senate. Our conversation was recorded last week. We're also going to air our conversation with Representative Katie Porter on Wednesday. Our conversation with Representative Barbara Lee is scheduled for later this month. And we're still trying to get Mr. Garvey to join us as well. We'll keep you posted. You're listening to Insight here on Cap Radio. I'm your host, Vicki Gonzalez. We're back in just a moment. Hi there. If you're enjoying Insight, we think you'll love our podcast, Blue Dot, with your host, that's me, Dave Shlom. Every week, we take a deep dive into science and nature, from the search for life beyond our pale blue dot in the vastness of space to the ecosystems we all depend on. You never know what you'll hear from the physics of Leonardo da Vinci to communications with humpback whales. Check out Blue Dot wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Welcome back to Insight on Cap Radio. I'm your host, Vicki Gonzalez. This weekend is a great excuse to soak in Nevada County foothills and enrich your mind with the wonders of Mother Nature. The Wild and Scenic Film Festival kicks off Thursday and runs through the holiday weekend to Monday. The festival is produced by Circle, that is the South Yuba River Citizens League, and proceeds help fund conservation projects to protect and restore the Yuba River watershed. Joining us is Livia Campos de Meneses, the festival director of the the Wild and Scenic Film Festival. Good afternoon. Welcome back. Thank you for having us here. You know, this is the 22nd year the Wild and Scenic Film Festival is taking place. I'd love to just go back to year one. How did this all come about? So, yeah, as you mentioned, the festival is produced by the South Yuba River Citizens League Circle, um, which is a nonprofit organization founded in the 80s to protect the Yuba River watershed. And when they won protection for 39 miles of the South Yuba River under California's Wild and Scenic Rivers Act, they decided to create an event to celebrate. And this event became Wild and Scenic, and we've been happening for 22 years now. The lineup and just the amount of activities that people can take in, it is very impressive. I mean, this festival is going four days, um, and it's not only films. You have other activities as well. If someone's going to the Wild and Scenic Film Festival for the first time, how do you recommend they navigate experiencing this? Because it's, it's it's a lot of fun, but I could also imagine it's, it's pretty overwhelming. I saw the itinerary. <laughs> Yes, yeah, I. you're right. We have a lot of things happening starting on Thursday. And I think that Thursday is a great day to, to go to Sierra College, which is 
a new venue for us, and we'll have a session called Sneak Peek. So if this is your first time, you have no idea what the Wild and Scenic Film Festival is about, I recommend watching this session. We'll have films, uh, family-friendly films about wildlife, adventure, environmental justice, and it's a great way to see what all the sessions are about. Um, and of course, if you don't know if you are um, wanting to pay for a session, go to the Media Lounge. Um, all, a lot of the filmmakers coming to the festival will be interviewed so you can learn more about their films, about them, and then deciding which session you would like to check out. And there are pieces of art and really creativity of all mediums for all ages. You actually have specific programming for kids. If people have a family, uh, what should they know about this weekend? Yeah, we do have some special programming for kids. Um, on Thursday evening, there is one of our favorite sessions at the film festival, the 3D family-friendly films happening at the Laurel Theater in Grass Valley. Our wild child session happens on Saturday morning, also at the Laurel Theater. Um, and we do have two youth workshops happening on Saturday afternoon, one in Nevada City and one in Grass Valley. And like I, I mentioned, we have a lot of sessions that are family friendly. So our wildlife sessions, for example, they are great ones to bring your kids to the movies. Mm. And Nevada City and Grass Valley. I mean, they're relatively small towns and cities. They are incredibly charming in the foothills. You also have some transportation because Grass Valley and Nevada City are pretty close. But I can only imagine the influx of people you have over this film festival. Uh, traffic can be a little bit of a headache. You have a shuttle running from Friday to Sunday, and people can check more about the schedule online. Um, but the idea is to make sure that people can park their cars maybe um, in the beginning of the day and just use the shuttle if they want to attend a session in Nevada City or Grass Valley, depending where they parked. What does a festival like this add to Nevada City and Grass Valley? I mean, I would imagine you have thousands and thousands of people who are going to be showing up. Yeah, we have decided to have this festival in the winter time, also because it's a slow period of time for the businesses around here. So the idea is to um, bring a lot of business to, to our shops, our restaurants, and also expose the beauty of Nevada City, the Yuba River, to people who might never heard about us before. We are such a very special um Gold Rush town here in California. So we will make sure that people learn more about us. What goes into selecting films that are going to be featured at this festival? Um, so it's a lot of work, as you can imagine. Um, for this year, we reviewed around 500 films to select the official films playing at the festival. Our theme this year is real action. So when creating the programs, we were looking for uplifting stories, which showed challenges, but also provided solutions for what uh, we have all been dealing with as human beings. Um, the theme also pays homage to our tagline, where activism gets inspired. Uh, and we believe that film and art can drive change. So real as in film real, is a way to reinforce that the power of watching something together and getting ideas to take action and improve our communities. 
As I mentioned, this film festival is put on by Circle, that's the South Yuba River Citizens League, and proceeds from this festival helped really fund conservation projects to restore and protect the Yuba River watershed. If someone hasn't experienced the Yuba River watershed, can can you tell us what makes it so beautiful, uh, beautiful to protect and restore? Oh, no, I mean, I'm certainly biased. I've been living here for a while, and this is really special, special for us. Um, but yeah, it's a it's a pristine river, and in the summertime, people can definitely enjoy as as if they were going to the beach. A lot of things happening, and in the winter time, is also go for a hike. Um, yeah, like like I said, the the river is protected, so um, we. We don't have them here in the South Yuba River Citizens League. So it's a it's a it's a walk in nature and people can experience that. Yeah, I love the the South Fork of the Yuba River. You can totally appreciate why it's a wild and scenic river in this state. Finally, in the last 30 seconds or so that we have, um, I remember when you joined us in the past. I mean, this was obviously during the pandemic. And like a lot of um, organizations, you know, you had to pivot and you had to make it more accessible to people without physically being together. Do you still have a virtual component for this year's festival? Yeah, if there's a good thing about the pandemic is that many festivals now offer a virtual component. So those who travel to be here um, can also participate. Our virtual festival starts on the 15th and will run until the 25th. So even if you attended the the festival in person but couldn't catch a film because it played just once or the session was sold out, um, there could be a chance to watch it at home. Oh, that's exciting. So you're not missing out on much. You get you get a few more days to actually enjoy everything that's available at the film festival. Yes, that's exactly it. Livia, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much again for having us, Vicky. I hope you can make it to the festival. It sounds amazing. Livia Campos de Meneses is the festival director of the Wild and Scenic Film Festival. It's going to take place February 15th to the 19th. That's Thursday to Monday in Nevada County. And this film festival is produced by the South Yuba River Citizens League. The nonprofit helps to raise money for conservation projects to protect and restore the Yuba River watershed. And a note, Cap Radio is a sponsor of the Wild and Scenic Festival. That is it for Insight Today. You can learn more about our guests at capradio.org slash insight. You can also subscribe to the Insight podcast. If you want to join the conversation, you can communicate with us. Send us an email at insight at capradio.org. Thank you to producer Sarit Lashinsky and managing editor Arm Sarkissian. Our digital producer is Chris Feltz. Insight's technical director is Mark Jones. Our show music is produced by Adrian Gilmore. I'm Vicki Gonzalez. Thanks for joining us. We'll catch you back here tomorrow. Have a great day. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.